0: Well, that was fun. If you are are like me, maybe you're a parent, you have kids like me, they're grown and gone, you're kind of having some moments here, you're thinking about your own kids. Uh, We did something uh, when our kids were little, probably a lot of you did the same thing when they were the age of some of the kids we just saw up here, when Crane and I might be away for a few days, or I might go on a little trip or something like that, we would bring a treat home for the kids, a little gift, a little something, maybe a a food treat or a t-shirt or some little toy that was associated with whatever town or city we had visited. It was kind of fun to see their reaction when we got home, but I realized after a while we we started to create a sense of entitlement in our kids, they kind of expected it after a while. I noticed after doing this a few times, I've come home from being away, and they would follow me upstairs, and they would kind of be waiting, very obviously kind of waiting for this moment, and I would sort of milk it and play a little bit, and they would say, like, Dad, you want us to help you unpack your bag, and you know, that kind of, They knew what was coming, and so I would I would make them kind of uh, sweat it out just a little bit. At one point, I remember I said to them a couple times, like, when they say, I, did you bring us something, Dad? They finally just blurt it out, and I would say, I brought you me, and they would clearly be disappointed. Um, So yeah, I created these little monsters of, of entitlement. The whole thing was cute when they were little, but then as they started to expect it, I wasn't sure we had done the right thing. Now here's why I tell you that story, and here's how you might relate to this illustration and why I bring it up in a setting like this. Sometimes our faith, our expressions of faith, resemble make us resemble children begging for a gift begging for a blessing now you might be who knows where in your faith journey early late trying to figure it out trying to cling to it i don't know but it's possible that your faith at times at least resembles a little child begging for a gift from dad God, you have something for me? God, this was a beautiful day, I love it. Now, what do I get from it? What do you have for me, God? Sometimes our faith can become transactional, a way to get stuff, a a way to get God to do what we want. Some of the best-selling Christian books of the last couple of decades are all about how to get God to do your bidding, how to get God to answer your prayers, how to extract blessing from God. These books sell because they play on our immaturity something within us that knows that God is God and we're not and he's got capacity to to give us blessing and so we're always hoping for access. We're looking for treats and blessings but the problem with this is something you probably already know. It's impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone with whom you're trying to get something. Authentic relationships aren't possible when there's an agenda when there's an agenda, you will be like the little kids, you know, kind of wiggling and dancing, playing the little game, you know, trying to see what's gonna happen. You're, you're sort of waiting for this little dance to happen. When you want something from someone, uh, you can't have an authentic relationship with them. It doesn't really work, but here's the good news. The gospel writer John, John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers and allies, John says that God has given us everything we need and everything we want and 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 need most all at once in himself his presence was intended to reveal the identity and the nature of god the father and this relationship that we are invited into is supposed to be the driving force in our life and if this isn't an overwhelming thought to you yet then this message this whole series is for you because what we're going to talk about for a few weekends is how God showed up in the flesh to help us discover a real, vibrant, and mature faith. One that's more than theological head knowledge, but one that's, that really becomes something that changes our perspective and penetrates our hearts and becomes a driving force. When this happens, when our faith moves from head to heart, uh, it changes absolutely everything. So my big, hairy, audacious goal for these messages is that Jesus will somehow become more real and relevant than before, and that his presence and his teaching and his way will hopefully become the driving force in your life, but at least a driving force. And I think the uh, apostle John has the exact same goal, because he followed Jesus He accepted and embraced Jesus as his Messiah. And once he was convinced of this, he wanted to help us do the same. And so my prayer is that all of you, especially any of you who are unsure, I mean, we're not going to address every possible objection that you might have to faith in Christ, but hopefully through this look at the historical Jesus, some new appreciation and devotion and dedication will be the result. So our curriculum for the next few weekends are these seven I am statements from Jesus about himself in the gospel of John. Jesus made a lot of bold statements that are recorded for us in the gospels, and these are are really pivotal. Most of them are metaphorical in the way they're kind of laid out. So here's all seven statements all at once. I want you to see the whole thing. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, gate for the sheep, good shepherd, resurrection, truth and life and the true vine. That's what we're going to look at for a few weekends. So that's your lineup. That's your preview. So now let's tackle the one for today, the bread of life. This comes from John 6:35. This is our key verse for this weekend. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Some of you have heard that verse all your life. you maybe don't really grasp everything that's going on there. It's possible that that's the case. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Well, let me try to help you get your mind inside maybe what Jesus was getting at here. Uh, I want to show you a little Bible study coach. Uh, I, I try to do this once in a while just to hey, This is a, a little helpful tip for how to read the scriptures. Every word matters. Um, and what I mean by that is th- they're there for the reason. And so if you just look carefully at some of this stuff, you can kind of start to link to context. And there's a reason why I, I put that word then in bold, that's a key word in this. You wouldn't necessarily think that at first, but the then clearly indicates that there's a context here. This is tied to something that went on before. And if you know me, you know my teaching at all, context is always king. So let's talk about what's happening in the chapter that is John 6. It's a loaded chapter. It's 70 verses. A lot of really significant stuff happens. I would encourage you to read it on your own. You should read it like a jeweler looking at a diamond. There is so much to look at there and so little time. So I will summarize quickly. John 6 begins with a miracle. It's one of the most uh, famous miracles of Jesus. It's the feeding of 5,000 people, this huge group. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. And I love John's explanation of it. I think he does the best job explaining it. And it's all about bread. We're going to talk about bread a little bit this morning. Actually, we're going to talk about bread a lot. If you're celiac, I'm sorry. Um, But the Bible is very bread-forward. I'm just going (laughs) to acknowledge that a little bit. So we're going to talk about bread a little bit. Bread is all over the biblical record. There's nothing gluten-free in the scriptures. Uh, Partly that's because bread has been around for a a long, long time, and historically it's cheap. It's something that most people can kind of cobble together. In the ancient world, meat is a luxury. Karina and I have a whole freezer, a chest freezer in our basement just for meat. That makes us rich by the world's standards or by by historical standards, that makes us weirdos because people don't eat the meat that we eat today. They largely subsist on bread. That's a staple. It's the heart of the meal. And that's why it becomes a symbol of life itself couple examples of this in the scriptures when you think about the lord's prayer if you know that the lord's prayer the prayer that jesus taught his disciples to pray he encourages us in the middle of that prayer to make part of the prayer a petition to ask god and we're encouraged to ask god when we say give us this day our daily bread because bread is everything we need for life it that's what it means it's what we need to keep going Now for ancient Israelites, there's a lot more to think about. Bread has all kinds of historical references to their story. Maybe you know the Old Testament story of manna in the wilderness. God is leading the children of Israel out of the promised land and Some of them are starving, they're in the wilderness for a long time, and so God provides manna six days a week. They just go out and pick it up. It's there in the morning, these little flakes that can be kind of pressed together and made into cakes, and they uh, supposedly have a little bit of a honey taste, so they're savory and satisfying. This is what strengthens the children of Israel and keeps them alive. Another good reference for an ancient Israelite would be uh, one that comes from the tabernacle. When they're instructed way back historically to build a tabernacle, the tabernacle is all about where they will relate to God physically. And in the tabernacle, there's a place called the altar, uh, an object called the altar of shoebread. And it's basically a table where 12 loaves would be placed out uh, once a week. These 12 loaves probably smelled nice on the day it got put out there. But all of this is a relational symbol. It's the start of a, a pathway to relationship. 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 loaves, all that kind of stuff. Today, we still do the same stuff. Food is really around, it's, it's about coming together. It's about relationship. If you come to, if Karina and I invite you to our house and you sit at our table, that is a demonstration of friendship. And historically, uh, uh, covenants are ratified through Eating together. Truces are ratified through breaking of bread together. And all of this comes to uh, a remarkable head and a place in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, uh, God is leading Israel to Mount Sinai, and He says there, I'm going to establish a relationship with you. But God, historically, way back in the early parts of the Old Testament, typically shows up in smoke and fire and thunder and this kind of intensity. Uh, Back then, especially, God keeps His distance because God is holy and we're not. And so, There's this sense of the holy can't mix with the unholy, the finite can't mix with the infinite. You can't see God, you can't look at him, you can't touch the mountain when God's on the mountain, all that kind of stuff. But there's this cool spot in Exodus 24 where God, as it were, atones for their sin, I'm not going to take the time to do all the detailed work here. You can do this on your own, Exodus 24. But the elders of Israel sprinkle blood and they describe the, the covenant that's being established. The ground changes color. It's a crazy, crazy text. And then it says God did not raise his hand against them. In other words, God didn't recoil at the difference between them and God. It says they saw God and they ate and drank. So again, this, I'm summarizing a huge story here, but they've been told they can't be in the presence of God, but instead of getting smoked by God in that moment, they have dinner with them. They have dinner with God. Bread represents more than savory satisfaction and strength. It represents oneness, togetherness. It represents peace. It represents relationship. Breaking bread with God means he's not just king, but he's friend of your heart. So that's some of the Bible's bread backstory. So now let's jump back to John chapter 6, and I hope that little quick word study helps prepare you for what you're about to receive. What is Jesus getting at when he says, I'm bread? For sure it's relationship, but why does Jesus say, I'm the bread of life? Now, again, I take you back to John 6, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 people. After that event, everybody disperses, they go home, the disciples get in a boat, they go to Capernaum, they're separated from Jesus for a little while, and when he reconnects with them the next day, they start to ask him about where he was, and this is what he says to them. Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You liked the food. You liked the blessing I gave you. And then he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The bread that Jesus is talking about here is bread of life, eternal life. And that's really what the book of John is all about. It's about how you, through Jesus, can have eternal life. But I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about when we say eternal life. It's more, it looks to be more, according to John, more than just life extended. It's that for sure, but it's a quality of life. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I depend on the Greek nerds to to instruct me, and they say there's two Greek words here typically associated with the English word life, and one is the Greek word bios, it means physical life or physical existence, and the other is the Greek word zoe, which refers to not just physical existence, but also quality of life. So let me try to illustrate it this way. Maybe you've been on a vacation, you've been in a particularly beautiful spot, maybe you're by the ocean, you're having dinner, it's a beautiful night, you're with somebody you love and you look out and everything's just wonderful and perfect and one of you might say to the other, ah, this is living. It's a little bit of a... A cheesy statement, but you've heard people say that. You've probably said something like that, like, ah, this is, is life at its best. Living is a form of the word life. So if a person in a moment like that says, this is living, are they talking about their physical existence, like I'm alive? No, I don't think they're talking about bios. They were alive before dinner, and hopefully they'll be alive after dinner. This is a reference to quality of life. This is living, in a moment like that, is a comment about life being good and rich and full and exciting and meaningful. There's a big difference between just existing and living. Most of you are trying to do more than just live, you're, or exist, you're actually trying to live. And so here's my point in all this. In the Greek text, John quotes Jesus as saying, more than eternal bios is what I give you, eternal zoe is what I also give I mean, existence is great. I like existing. Um, I hope you do too. But the invitation is to a quality of life. It's, it's more than existing. It's really living. Energy, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. It's not merely bios. It's eternal Zoe, quality of life. And this life begins now. When you see the phrase eternal life, uh, most of us have been conditioned to think, okay, that means after I die, I go live with God. It may be at least that, but I think it's more than that. Eternal life is an existence that's more than just something that goes on forever. But the point being made in the text is it actually starts now. And here's how I know this. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a now vibe there. How do we get this bread? Jesus says, believe in me, come to me, and get it now. Now, clearly Jesus is not saying that if we come to him and we believe in him, we won't have to eat anymore. That's, he's not talking about bios here. Jesus is explaining to his his friends that he's here to satisfy a much deeper hunger. And I got to assume, as dangerous as it is to assume, that Jesus is thinking about the history of Israel and the manna and Israel in the wilderness and starvation and all of that, and that part where uh, suddenly Moses is instructed to say to the people, God's going to give you bread, God's going to feed you, and it happens. It's there on the ground for uh, six days a week, but God only gives them enough for one day at a time. They have to get up and they have to gather every morning, and the instruction is don't Hoard. Don't try to save it because if you do, it'll spoil. And historically, this is a, a big deal because God is saying through the story, "I want you to depend on me. I'm, it's not the manna saving you. I'm saving you. I want you to trust me." So that's what was going on back there. What Jesus is saying now is, listen, there's a lot of great things in this world and they're gifts from God. There's beauty, there's talents, there's relationships, there's career, there's family, there's the Oilers in the playoff. There's lots of things that add Zoe to life. All that stuff's great, but when these things become the primary ways to help you move from just existing to living, if these become your primary sources of joy, if these become your sources of meaning and hope and joy and security and love, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because that food spoils. That food spoils. Whatever thing, whatever dream we look for to uh, give us ultimate fulfillment, Jesus says, be careful because it can spoil. I'm the manna. I'm the one thing that can satisfy your soul. I'm the one with savory... I'm the one thing that can give your life strength and meaning. I'm repeating myself a little bit, but again, he's talking about quality of life here. And this is not something that, that Jesus just gives. He's it. He doesn't say, I have the bread of life even if we have some translations that might use that, uh, that phrase. He says, I am, I am the bread of life. And so one more time, how, how do we get this? How does a person eat the bread? Well, verse 35, believe in me, come to me. You got to think about that. We don't really believe in bread. Maybe we come to bread a little bit. What Jesus is doing here with this confusing language is he's bringing a couple different fields of discourse together. What he's saying is, When you come to me and believe in me, you're feeding on me. You're getting the bread. This is Jesus' way of saying a a deep connection with him leads to deep satisfaction. He is the divine. He's the cosmic truth become a person who walks and talks and laughs and cries, the one who reveals the true heart and nature and character of God. And that's why we say you can know him because you can know Jesus. And while we're on the subject, what we're talking about right now, this is something that makes Christianity unique among other religious systems, because most of them uh, sound like this. Here's the way, here's how you access the bread of life. It's the five pillars or the eight-fold path. Like, that's the way most religious systems work. In other words, do this, or don't do that. Religious systems come with a lot of doing or not doing. Most religions teach though that salvation is achieved through doing something. You have to do something to get the bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. If you have me, you have everything you need. You have salvation. You don't have to strive. You don't have to achieve. This is salvation by grace. In context, again, Jesus is talking to his disciples the day after the feeding of the 5,000 people. And so you can see in the text, and this happens a lot, they're kind of like, ah, we don't quite get this. They say again, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? What are the works that God requires? And this is Jesus' response. One more time, verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, The the only work you have is just to believe. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe in the one that God has sent and believe that he's done it. He lived the perfect life. He loved God the Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved neighbor. He's the only one who's done it perfectly. And so then what you do is you just come to him and believe in him and you have it. He doesn't say get on the path to life. He says I'm life. Now, in a few moments, we're going to end our experience together the way we ought to when this is the text. We're going to partake in communion together. We're going to do communion on a weekend we wouldn't normally do communion. We typically do it on the first full weekend of the month, but we're going to do it today because we're talking about I am the bread of life. And so we got to have communion today, but I want to help you get ready for that. So I'm just going to ask you to soak for a couple more minutes in the message title. I am the bread of life. I want to just talk about those a couple more minutes. The phrase, I am, that's a really, really interesting phrase, those two words put together in the scriptures. It's, it's quite emphatic. Uh, even though the messages will largely focus on the metaphors like bread and light and gate and shepherd and vine, the series title, I am, is something that is uh, all over the scriptures. And one of the places it shows up in a really emphatic way is in John chapter 8. And John 8... An argument is taking place. There's some religious leaders there. Jesus is there, and they're going back and forth. And they say to Jesus, we're children of Abraham. We don't really need you. And Jesus looks at them and says one of the more shocking things he ever says. Some people think this is one of the most astonishing things he says in the whole recorded uh, scripture. He says, uh, before Abraham was born, I am before Abraham was born, I am. Now that sounds like bad grammar, but it's not. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was, which would have been pretty amazing by itself. He could say that, but this is astounding. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, they know what he means. They know exactly what he's saying there because that's when they immediately try to kill him. They hear that and they go, okay, we gotta kill this guy. When Jesus says, I am, Jesus is taking the divine name that God gave Moses when he met Moses in the burning bush. And you can look at that in Exodus 3. When God says to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. I want you to go and confront him. Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. God is basically saying, I'm the God who always am. I'm beginningless. I'm endless. There was never a time when you could have said he will be, and there will never be a time when you can say he was. I always am. There's no beginning. There's no ending. Nothing can stop me from existing. I am the source of all being. Moses, tell them, being itself and the source of all being has sent you. That's my name. So here's how I'd like to invite you to experience communion this morning. Anybody who farms, uh, raises cattle, chickens, whatever, they know that generally um, we don't eat unless something dies. Slight exaggeration, but generally speaking, almost everything we eat requires something to die so that we can live. When Jesus says, I am God who's become bread, what he means is, I am God made breakable and vulnerable. Vulnerable. I am God come to die for sin. I am God come to atone to make things right. I am God become vulnerable so that you can be saved by grace. That's why Jesus, when he breaks bread with his disciples in Luke 22, the night before he dies, he holds up bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. So a couple of thoughts as you prepare to head to the table. First, one more time, Jesus Christ is not someone to merely believe in, though he is that. But you're, you're really invited to make him your strength and your life. This is something that you're invited into. And yeah, there's some doing there. Uh, but it's not supposed to be abstract and 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 difficult. He's food. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't have any trouble. I will have no trouble eating lunch in about an hour or so. Uh, I like food. I eat almost every day. Um, so one of the ways to just experience this and to feed on Jesus is to do more than just believe him in your brain. You got to find ways to make him your actual strength and life for living. He's your life. He's here for you. Pursue him. Yes, pray to him for sure. Study his teaching and his ways, absolutely. But more than anything else, just rest in him. Trust in him. Get your confidence and your strength from him. Cast your anxieties on him. And it's possible that this is a difficult season for you. Maybe you're in the wilderness right now. Listen, God has manna for you, and it's Jesus. He's the saver, and I mean that in... Always. There's satisfaction in Jesus Christ. He's deeper than anything else. I know this is cliche, but there's truth here. Sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And finally, I just want to speak to any of you who've really never made any kind of actual commitment to Christ. If you've never articulated faith and claimed Jesus as forgiver and leader, why don't you come to him? And believe in him and maybe the way you could do that this morning is by partaking in the elements of communion for the very first time maybe today finally understanding the metaphor Jesus is your bread he became breakable by leaving his glory behind and going to the cross and just revel in that find meaning and confidence and satisfaction in the living bread of life so Jerry and Amber are going to come back out here and they're going to sing a song Now, for the next few minutes, here's what we're going to do. They're going to sing this very appropriate song. You may want to sing along. You may just want to listen. You can stay seated. Uh, You might want to move around. Because here's how we're going to do community today. Uh, The servers are going to come and just kind of get the trays ready. But it's going to be sort of a dealer's choice kind of experience here. What I mean by that is if you wish to participate, you can. Nobody's forcing you. It's completely optional if you want to do this. There's elements at the back. There's elements at the front. If you want to come up right away and grab the elements, you certainly can. But I would encourage you not to rush this, to just sit in this a little bit, to take your time. You may want to take the elements back to your seat. You may want to partake of the elements up here, maybe by the side stages over by the cross. You can do that. I'm gonna encourage you to do this on your own. I'm not gonna kind of formally say, let's all do this in unison together. This is your time to experience the bread and the cup in your own way, thoughtfully and prayerfully. You might even wanna take the elements home with you. The good news about these cheesy COVID communion cups is that they're self contained. And so if you wanna put it in your purse or jacket and, and a pocket, whatever, take it home, take it to your car, take it outside. Go out to Elk Island Park this afternoon. Go out in your backyard this afternoon. Go for a walk. You might want to save it for Wednesday because you might think, when I need this relationship to be reestablished is in the middle of the week. So maybe take communion Wednesday, whatever. You decide however you wish to do this. Individually, as a couple, as a family, as a life group, whatever you want to do. And then uh, when Jerry and Amber finish the song, our service is over. We're not going to kind of formally dismiss. You're kind of free to make your way out on your own. Be sensitive to some folks if they're having a moment here a little bit. But for the next few minutes, and however you choose to engage with this, let's acknowledge and worship the I am, Jesus, the bread of life.